Designing for DevOps with Nick Russo, episode 30. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. Today, we have another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig, and I am your host. Today's guest expert has become an icon within this industry. He has been featured on the community show, The Network Collective, a number of times. He has been on our show, Episode 5, if you recall, where we talked about carrier supporting carrier for over 90 minutes. He holds uh, active Cisco Certified Design Expert Certification and two CCIEs, and one in routing and switching and one in service provider. He is just coming off an amazing week at Cisco Live US, where he rose the Cisco presentation bar with his troubleshooting OSPF session. He is my good friend, Marine brother. Please welcome Nick Russo to the show. Hey, thanks, Mike. Appreciate the, uh, the generous intro there. Doing good, man. Another day. Well, well, thank you for joining the show. You know, it's been a little bit. So we're, you know, you, you were first on the show in episode five, where we talked about care supporting carrier for some some time period. And here we are, uh, episode 30. So 25 episodes later, I thought it was fitting to get you on the show for episode 30. So it really worked out. Um, so thank you for joining us. I know you're very busy. Saw you at Cisco Live last last week. It was an amazing uh, presentation you gave. Um, really, really raising the bar, in my opinion, um, uh, vocalizing that as much as I can. So uh, again, if, if the listeners haven't um, downloaded the PDF, watch the presentation. I highly recommend it. It's really a different way of learning OSPF from, from the way that you should probably learn it from the beginning. Um, but today, uh, Nick, we're here to talk about uh, designing for DevOps, correct? That's right. Awesome, awesome. So, um, well, let's just kind of jump right in then. Sure. I, I think I think one of the first things we need to talk about with DevOps, and I'm I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to be the guy who says, oh, we have DevOps, and then we have Net DevOps, and then we have Sys DevOps, and all this. I'm not I'm not going to overly uh, qualify what I'm saying here. I'm just talking DevOps in general, the general concept around tighter integration between those who design the product and those who operate the product in production. That's really what we're focused on here. And I think that before we just start talking about random point improvement tools like automations and products and monitoring and all these things that you can easily find training on and that you can Google about it and do all this stuff in your network and look really good in front of your manager, that's not what the session's about, Mike. I think what we need to do is we need to take a big step back and we need to really fundamentally ask ourselves four key questions, or at least four key kind of design things that we need to keep in mind as we want to deploy DevOps-type mentalities to help our organizations win in the marketplace. And I took these kind of as a combination of two different schools of thought. And for those who have worked in DevOps for a while, you know that concepts came from Goldratt's theory of constraints um, and the lean communities, uh, lean production methods based on what Toyota did about 50 or 60 years ago. And what I did was I took something that Jim Womack, one of the lean pioneers, I'll say, of the past 30 years, something he said, which was purpose, process, people. And I take that with a common way that we use to measure KPIs within the IT environment, which is process, people, tools. And you notice those two things kind of have a, a two-thirds overlap. So what I decided to do is I kind of, you know, union or united, whatever the right set theory word is, I combined them. And I ended up with purpose, process, people, and tools. And these are kind of the four things I always consider when I'm trying to make some kind of business-level improvement. And I want to talk just briefly about those things. And I think it's important that we consider them in sequence. So first, the purpose. Probably painfully obvious to consider this first, but so many people 
don't. So many organizations lose sight of it. The purpose is what are we trying to solve? Why does our organization even exist? What is the goal? What are we, what are we even doing? And to quote Jim Womack again, he, he supplied it you know, within the context of physical production. He says, what do your customers want that you are not currently able to supply? It's a simple question and every business wants to answer that question. And from the customer's perspective, we need to identify or we need to figure out how do we add value for them. Now, this sounds just like corporate, you know, mumbo jumbo that everyone's heard, but it's actually quite important. Um, you know, when you go and look at some environment and you just want to carpet bomb automation everywhere because you think it's cool and trendy and new, think twice. Because unless you know what your purpose is and unless you know what the problem you're trying to solve, you're just throwing punches in the dark. No, exactly. The second piece of that is the process. It's, yeah, go ahead. You got no, something like, no, on that? Yeah. I think you just agree with it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with it. I mean, I, like I've, I think <laughs> uh, from my perspective, I always say what's the end, de- end destination of what you're trying to do, right? And I always kind of try to put a time limit on it, or uh, I guess a time frame on it, not time limit, um, three, five, 10 years. What, what's your des- destination in three, five, 10 years? What's your end goal? So that goes right back into purpose, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because... Because, you know, we're asking this question, what problem are we trying to solve? And a company's goals may change over time. And once we start to talk about business drivers in here in a little bit, you know, those goals may certainly change over time. And I think Amazon's a great example of that that we can start to talk about. Um, but let, let's talk about process, though, before we get too much into the business stuff. Um, you know, a, a process, a set of dependent events to achieve a, a given goal. And any anything you do in that process that doesn't add value to the customer is waste and needs to be removed. That's That's lean 101, and it's relevant for any business process. The important thing here, and this is one of the one of my favorite kind of gold rat, uh, I don't want to call it a quotation because it's not correct, but something that he says a lot is doing something faster that you shouldn't be doing in the first place is just waste anyway. You're not adding any value by automating a step that shouldn't be done. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and, that's, and that's important because a lot of people see a slow, cumbersome process or a bunch of people working on something. When the real value is eliminating it completely or overcoming it rather than just doing faster the thing that you should not be doing in the first place. Uh, The people aspect, I think, is pretty straightforward. People must understand the purpose, number one, and based on that purpose as the foundation, design and improve the processes to achieve it. Once you've got those three, then and only then should we start to consider the use of tools. Automation is just a tool, really, at 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 the base level. I think in IT we focus far too much on the tools, the products, the you know the how do we automate it, the languages, the version control, the latency. Like that's those are all kind of uh, effects of using a tool, trade-offs of, of specific tools. But I think it's more than just you have to look at more than just the tool, you know. And I have kind of three examples here that I think might paint the picture better. Well, well I mean, if I could, if yeah, I could stop ahead, you for a minute, Mike. sorry. I mean, but the tools are easy, right? I mean, that that's probably. What I would, uh, I would, uh, my opinion in the industry would be everyone goes the easy route. Um, you know, EIGRP and modifying EIGRP or OSPF, whatever technology you want to throw at it, is easier than trying to understand the process or uh, identify a legacy process that needs to be changed. Yep, we'll try anything easy that doesn't work before we try anything hard that does work. Exactly. And that's and that's you know I see that all the time, uh, both in my uh, both in my personal life and my pro- professional life. Um, and I think the, you know, and also for IT people who are technically skilled, which I think you and I hopefully fit into that bucket by now. I don't know. Um, maybe I don't. Know, I think you do. Yeah. Maybe I don't anymore. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, learning a new tool and mastering it and documenting it and testing it, that can be a little bit frustrating. You know, it might take a few hours, but then you master it and it's not that big of a deal. 
but you know, it might even take a year, but completely changing the process based on the company's vision and, you know, and making that huge difference in the way your organization operates. That's a way, in my opinion, a much more impressive achievement. And it's much more relevant to your organization and to the customers it serves. So I just thought of uh, uh, another podcast at some point for us to do uh, uh, examples of how to change a company's process. Yeah, that would be a great one too. I've got I've got a little bit of that in here, but certainly I think that would be a, that would be an extraordinary podcast. We'll definitely have to we'll pick that one up soon while we're hot on the trail. Exactly. But I think I think this is best illustrated with a simple example. You know, suppose we're on a racetrack and I've got three you know three people competing. I've got me, a, a not so great driver. I'm sitting in a race car and I'm revving my engine. I'm ready to go. Got a got a souped up car and I'm driving and I'm ready to go. Next to me is a professional race car driver driving my 2008 Kia Optima. Okay. And then next to him, we've got a, a race car, a good car with a professional driver, but he's constrained to only drive up to second gear. So not, really the goal here is that each one of these has a serious flaw. The race car with me driving has the wrong person. The Kia Optima driven by a professional driver has the wrong tool. And the race car with the driver that can't drive past second gear has the wrong process. None of these are winning combinations, and none of us wants to think of our business as being in one of these situations. But more than likely, in some cases, you may even be lacking more than one. But I want to paint this example because no matter what you do to me sitting in this race car, when you come up and and I keep losing the race because I'm not a good driver, and you keep trying to soup up my car, or you go to the car driver who can't drive past second gear and you keep souping up his car, it's probably not going to help him win the race. And that's where it's important to understand the procedural aspects and process improvement that DevOps really focuses on. You can't just migrate to the cloud and solve your problems. You can't just deploy your code to GitHub and then a CI pipeline and all your problems go away. It's not going to happen. Highly unlikely that's going to solve it. There's just, there's no easy button. There's no, there's no substitute for a critical thought. Now, like in anything. I'm going to ask the question here. Like, um, so let's say you're in this situation where, you know, a company's tried multiple avenues, like in your, in your, um, analogy with the race car. Um, you have three different options there. And let's assume that a company has gone through that process. Maybe it's middle management or, or frontline management. Um, and you're, you're kind of stuck in a rut. How do you go about changing that? What do you, what's your opinion on that? Do you, do you go to the executive team? How does that work? Well, what I would do, and I think I talk about this a little bit later. Um, the, the, the theory of constraints type idea that would happen in this point is when you find a, and again, assuming we're talking about specific processes type problems, you have to find the constraint in the process and target all your energy on resolving that, that bottleneck. Like what's the slowest part of it? Um, I can give some examples later that better illustrate okay. this, but Perfect. to give you the quick, you know, the quick down and dirty is, um, you know, and again, in, in Goldratt's, one of my favorite books by Goldratt, the goal, you know, you got kids on a hike, you got a slow kid in the middle and fast kids up front. How much, you know, how much more effective is that hike going to be if you can make the kids in the front faster? Nothing. No impact. It would be better if you could speed up the slower kid in the middle because then the whole line can move faster. So those are the kinds of things where identifying the constraint in the system is going to have a way bigger impact on throughput, which is you know, going to also have positive impacts on work and process and lead time. And we can talk a little bit about that later. But in terms of people in an organization, you generally have to do some experimentation to show them the impacts. I think a lot of modern managers like to see results pretty rapidly. So if you're able to change a process and run it your way for a week or two and clearly show the value. That's how you would try to get the people to buy in right away rather than just push the theory on them. But those are those are uh, kind of social engineering problems, to be sure. It, definitely easier said than done. Well, I think it depends on your environment, right? But yeah, again, it's a people situation, a people uh, personality situation other than 
over anything else. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think it's a good time to talk a little bit about some of the different business drivers. Like uh, I'm going to I'm going to way oversimplify here and anyone who's got like an MBA or they're a C-suite executive of a company or they run anything, don't peel my skin off for this, but I'm going to try to categorize really into three categories here. And one of them doesn't even really apply to companies that much, but the first one is your number one business driver is growth. So you may have a company that's growing really, really fast and they just want to capture as much market share and increase their sales as much as they can. And they're not too concerned about what their cost looks like. They just want to grow. They want to get as big as they possibly can, edge out the competition and grow revenue. I think a best example of this is Amazon. You know, I haven't looked at their financial statements in detail, but they've only had a couple profitable quarters in however many years. And guess what? They've got a, a 500 billion market cap right now. Extraordinary. And a company was not focused on profitability for a long time because they were focused on growth. And that's one way to grow. That's one way to run a business. The other way is profitability. And I'm not saying that growth and profitability are mutually exclusive, but it's typically difficult to focus on both at the same time, depending on the industry. Uh, For profitability, of course, you're trying to, you know, you want to maximize revenue and minimize costs so that you can be profitable and end up with a good bottom line. The automation approaches, though, you know, or at least from a DevOps perspective, is you're going to have different strategies for each one. Within the context of growth, you may be willing to deploy newer technologies faster, even more expensive ones, ones that may break more often and require more expensive engineers to maintain it because you're trying to grow and you're trying to show that you're a market leader and a thought leader. For profitability, you may be a little bit more conservative, you know, not terribly so, but you may want to do things like improve quality, which ultimately is going to reduce your rework, which will save costs. You may want to deploy services faster so you can kind of go from cash to order more quickly. That also kind of ties into a reduced lead time. So in the profitability area, you're really focused on delivering value to your customer faster, which gives you an edge in the market over your competition while keeping costs down at the same time. So a little bit less tolerance for risk. The third category, I call it stability. And I don't know a whole lot of companies where the CEO goes to the board and says, For the next five years, we're just going to maintain the status quo. And that's our long-term strategy. That guy's fired immediately for saying that. Um, This is true for governments, though, because the goal of most governments is just to be stable. Uh, Now, of course, you know, the, you know, changes in government policy aside, the government itself is generally supposed to be stable. That's what most people want. That's what most people expect from their governments. Uh, In that case, the automation strategy is probably going to be tied to that organizational driver, which means... We don't, you know, the services that we offer today, especially government IT organizations, we can't just immediately rock the boat and dump everyone out right away. You're going to need to take smaller and conservative steps. And the specific example we'll look at later in this podcast is going to be um, kind of a sanitized version of that to help explain how you can work with this. Now, some middle management, I know you mentioned middle management earlier, Mike, some middle managers, even though the company might have a... uh, a corporate goal of growth or profitability, the middle managers might just be focused on stability because it's it's healthy for their careers and jobs. That's a dangerous situation, and it's definitely it's definitely yeah, and it's definitely bad management too. But if you're trying to get your managers buy in on how to do something, and you need that person to go up the chain to help you get more money and time and funding and show value, then you may want to use the the stability option to start off and show something small. It's it's about bringing value as soon as you can and not focusing too much on perfect solutions. I would say, you know, now that we talk kind of high-level business drivers, um, and again, if, if Russ White listens to this, he's going to reach through the screen and choke me. But, you know, we've talked in the past about 
is there a difference between enterprise and service provider? Yes, no. Let's just assume that there is for the purpose of this discussion. You know, whether those lines get, I, I, I personally tend to agree those lines be, get blurred over time, especially when it comes to technology deployment. But for the purpose of this conversation, let's just assume that they're, they're different things. Within an enterprise, I see IT kind of filling two roles. And again, this is, this is bimodal IT textbook here. And I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying this is how it is or how it should be. I'm just kind of laying it out there as how it's traditionally been. Again, not a, not an endorsement here, but I see it as kind of, you have your internal IT service team. They're focused on things like bug fixes, request fulfillment. I need a new keyboard, do this WAN migration. They're really a service provider for the business. Uh, and they're really focused on internal stuff for the people that run the business. Um, and then you have people who are, I call it external. Now, these might be people doing more R&D projects for the business to help the business win in the marketplace. The thing that comes to my mind right away for this would be maybe people in development who are working on e-commerce websites and marketing. They're doing analytics with marketing and finding out how to grow sales. Um, they're, they might be viewed more like a business partner rather than just an outsourced contractor style relationship as the previous category. Totally agree with that hundred percent. Um, in my experience, like in the past with a, a SaaS provider, I worked at a SaaS provider years and years ago, I'm not going to name any names, but, uh, um, so the SaaS provider, we had different groups. We had an applications team, we had a development, uh, a developments team, and then we had the IT networking team. So very different groups kind of managing, um, the different, I guess, uh, responsibilities within the organization. And you could totally see the differences on the business side, who is kind of favored versus who wasn't. Um, I mean, the, the development and the application teams had direct IT business partnership, whereas the network team just didn't have that that partnership uh, at that time. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it's similar. It's even similar in the military. And I'm sure you can relate. It's like, you know, think about you're at a, you know, at, at a command level and you've got one group of people that are focused on doing things like running cables and getting users on the network, issuing laptops, doing inventory on hard drives, et cetera. And then you have another group of people, typically the more senior individuals who are working with the operations and command staff to do uh, detailed plans for, for military operations. So one people are focused on the helping the organization win and the other people are focused on uh, getting people the access they need. And I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but we see this bimodal difference. Um, when it comes to automation strategies though, within the enterprise, uh, that the size of the enterprise tends to be directly proportional to the amount of risk they don't like. So larger enterprises tend to be more risk averse. Again, it depends, of course, Amazon's one notable exception. I would say that the internal IT team is probably going to be even more constrained on what they do. Generally, they're going to be, uh, without sounding uh, condescending here, a lot of the individuals are just going to be watching dashboards most of the day, issuing tickets. So their role in being able to automate might be something like using troubleshooting automation tools to help them isolate common faults to save time and money. Basically, IT as a cost center, you would want to reduce their cost. So you'd be looking at squeezing profitability out of them. That would be kind of be the, the micro business goal. That'd be an easy win, too, from an organization like that. They would be able to, to instantiate something like that to save time and be more efficient from a help desk perspective. I'm cor correlating help desk as like a ticketing system and, and common issues type of situation. Yep, absolutely. I think for external, though, you tend to, again, have less network type people and more developer type people within the IT organization. And as such, you would probably have a little more, uh, what's the word, um, 
a little more modern touch to it and a little bit less risk. They're, the focus might be on growth. Again, if we're talking about sales and marketing, all they care about is bringing in revenue. So these guys might be willing to take more risks. They might be deploying new applications. They might be making changes to the website really regularly. They might have a full up DevOps type continuous integration, continuous deployment approach where they push code into a repository. It gets automatically tested, packaged and deployed out to the web servers that they're running in the cloud and all this fun stuff, you know. So I think you would generally excuse me, you generally see the higher tech work being done in the external type IT as a business partner, you know, within the development. I think that's really where the word term DevOps came from is what I just described in about two sentences is what the DevOps movement was about, especially in the enterprise space. Well, that, that was perfect right there. So uh, just for everyone listening, I'm going to aside here, um, our term of the show is going to be DevOps. And, and uh, Nick, just, just defined it right there for you. So I think that is a great definition personally of what DevOps is. And that's strate- uh, not not specific DevOps to like, uh, like I think we talked about net DevOps and all the other kind of miscellaneous um I would say terminology that's been thrown out there in the industry, but just general DevOps to what we believe it it is today. Yep, I think so too. As long as we understand that, you know, those who design the product and those who operate the product in production, whether that product is a network service or whatever, the idea is to kind of tightly couple those two things together, get them in lockstep, focus on automation and what monitoring and uh, quality at the source, continuous testing, all those kinds of things are part of it. And none of that is specific to software development. And I, I realized that the term DevOps came out of that movement, but clearly it can be applied in the network space, which is what we're talking about right now. And I would argue that because so much of it was based on stuff that came out of physical product manufacturing, a lot of the same concepts apply. So it's really not new concepts, it's just been adapted for IT. No, exactly. Now, I, I would, I have a, a comment question i don't know what to call it so um we talk about internal it service we talk about external like the e-commerce the websites the devops kind of role um and i i would i guess it's a comment right um in my experience there's always an overlap where and i don't mean like each person's doing the other person's work like that i meant more like um the external the, the devops kind of role is working on some new initiative business initiative that's a high priority whatever that that task might be that website or that offering or whatever and then the internal it service team has to fulfill that service in some fashion um historically for me it's been okay we got to build those those virtual machines we got to build those new networks we got to, you know, do load balancing uh, for the DevOps team. Um, and then from there, the DevOps team goes forth and conquers whatever their application is at that point. But there, there is some um, symbiotic type of relationship between the two, in my experience. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's hard to completely decouple these things for sure, um, both between Dev and Ops and even between the internal and the external. You know, of course, bimodal IT generally put a brick wall between them. I think DevOps helps tear that down, but that's kind of a different conversation. Um, you know, we, t- we take that same kind of idea and in service provider space, I think it's a kind of a natural transition here is that in the SP space, you know, we'll have, a t- you know, uh, I, I know, for example, one of our, uh, one of my friends in France, he works for a large ISP and he's on the core team and then they have an edge team and they have different kind of functional area teams or different parts of the network, which makes sense because the technologies are different. The design considerations are different. Uh, and in the SP environment, again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but I see kind of two main uh, things or uh, business entities that would need to be automated here. So we have a kind of an edge type service provisioning where 
We want to deliver customer connectivity and we want to do that with short lead time. And we even may want to provide customer flexibility, like giving the customer a portal where they can kind of drag and drop or somehow uh, supply some kind of data file that's going to determine what, what VLANs they want to connect over some layer two VPN or whatever. And those kind of edge services are extremely common in service provider environments. In fact, even, even in the government, I don't, you know, which is like decades behind everything else and everything. Exactly. Uh, even they have technology to do this today. Um, so this has been around for a long time. And, Typically, in service provider environments, the edge you know the edge provisioning is generally fast and easy to do. But minimizing that lead time and getting customers uh, to change their services on the fly and having those having that capability is a big deal. Then we also have the core routing team, which their main purpose, as I see it, would be things like traffic engineering, uh, fast reroute, high availability. Overall, I saw them as almost cost reduction. Because at the edge, the services is where we get our revenue from. The customers pay us for that connectivity service. But in the core, we want to make sure that our links are well utilized. You know, a, a, an over-engineered or excess capacity service provider core is a waste of money. We've tied up capital in DWM equipment and leased fiber and all this other stuff maybe that is extremely expensive. So we want to make sure that we're using all of our links to an appropriate level of capacity that you know, not 100%, of course, because then we have no failover, but we want to avoid expensive upgrades, new fiber runs and things like that. So I kind of, again, I may be, I may be wrong on this, but my view kind of from the outside is the people who work the edge team are trying to bring revenue in. Those who are on the core team are trying to keep costs down uh, and not have customer outages, of course, because if there's problems in the network, customers call, lose lost sales, et cetera. So they're kind of protecting the company's bottom line. In terms of automation, though, I think you're yeah, right on there. Just sorry, I think you're right on with that 100%. I, I totally agree. In my service provider experience, you have the provisioning team, and then you have the kind of core routing team. What I will say is, I never thought about thought about it as a cost reduction before, um, which it, it is exactly that. It's a cost reduction for the company as a whole, the service provider. Um, I always thought about as a kind of infrastructure team managing and you know doing. MPLS traffic engineering optimization and uh, provisioning maybe some DWDM equipment, et cetera, et cetera. I never thought of it as, you know, you're doing fast reroute for a purpose, right? You're doing HA for a purpose, traffic engineering tunnels for a purpose. What's that end purpose again? Yeah. And the way I look at it is like this. Your customer pays you money because they want connectivity across the network. And I see that as the, that's like the edge services. We're paying you for this layer three VPN and here, take my money. Uh, from the core, but the customer isn't paying you because you have the newest DWDM equipment. They're not paying you because you're running traffic engineering. That's just the means that you're doing it. And you want to make sure that cost is as little as possible because it's transparent to the customer. That's like your backside operation where your edge services is what your customer is consuming. So that's kind of why I drew this. It might be an artificial line, but it helps me to think about I'm bringing revenue in from one type of automation and cost reduction from the other. So we're really solving two different problems. In one, we want short lead times, customer satisfaction, and customer flexibility. So we may deploy some specific tools to help with that. And in the core, we need to do kind of complex, I'll just use a term that math people will hate. I'm just going to say graph operations, You know, kind of ignorant there. But we're just going to have to figure out how is the network connected? Where should the backup tunnels be? What kind of technology should we use in the core? How can we balance the flow across all the different links? I'm sure there are some real smart algorithms out there and products and solutions that have already solved this problem that a lot of large SPs use today. But again, the idea is let's squeeze as much capacity we can out of the resources we have so that we can uh, delay updates into the future so we can hold on to cash for longer. So that's the reason I kind of call it a cost reduction thing. No, I, like I said, I totally agree with that 100%. I never thought of it before. Um, I mean, that's just uh, me losing my technical ability over the, over the years, but just never never correlated that it's a cost reduction. So, um, 
I think I think another kind of comparison. I know we've looked at you know enterprises and SPs, and we've looked at different business drivers. I think another thing that applies to a lot of organizations is the type of automation to use between brownfield and greenfield. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I don't think I've ever done a greenfield deployment like ever in my career. I wish I did. I mean, I've done like some new in a stuff lab, like, like like yeah, like in a lab, right? So brownfield is so much more common, and that's why I think we see a lot of low barrier to entry automation tools taking off the way they do. And I think one, you know, again, Ansible is one of my favorite and because the barrier to entry is so low and you can don't need agents on the old routers and you can just do SSH commands. It's not sexy. It's not really that exciting, but it is exciting in a way because now all this stuff is easy and a lot more people can get their hands on with it. Uh, the backwards compatibility tends to be important for brownfields. There's almost always going to be a very slow migration that can't tolerate any downtime. And there's overall a less tolerance for risk, which means that your automation approach is going to generally start small, focusing on the business value of, okay, the goal here is to add some new devices here. And we already we already understand that doing these new devices is going to have benefits A, B, and C. And we want to roll in some automation to help with the migration because the longer the migration goes on, the more money it costs us. And maybe we're trying to do this as part of a cost reduction as we roll out the new the new branch sites or whatever. That's been generally my experience with brownfield type deployments when we're trying to deploy, you know, like a tech insertion would be another way to look at it. Yeah, so it's, it's just a, you said start small and focus on the biz, the business value. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like it's a ramp up with milestones of some sort, whatever time frame you're talking about. Um, it sounds like maybe your, your time frame is six months or a year, whatever works for your organization. I'm sure if you're an enterprise service provider, it might be different versus like the government world. Uh, I don't know if, you know, our experience with the government, I mean, it's usually a lot longer of a time frame. Um, they're usually less prone to do something new uh change and whatnot but it sounds like you could do like a phased approach where you're doing here's your milestone for whatever time period and you move into the second milestone for the next time period to eventually get to your end goal right yeah that's absolutely right and i think that you know for a lot of brownfield environments that end goal you know you may you may have a a kind of a strategic vision on what you want to do but those specific goals are likely going to change a little bit Uh, you may have you may have very very targeted like, hey, we want to have 100 new customers by the end of the year, and everything you do should be focused on that goal. But if your goal is a little more of a vision and maybe not perfectly quantified, those things may change over time, especially with a brownfield, because as you add these new things to the network, because the network already operates a certain way, and when you add all this new stuff to it, you're basically forecasting what's going to happen. And we all know how long-term forecasts aren't accurate. So yeah. you may uh, you know, you know, may find out that some there may be some changes there. And I think that the you want to start small, Again, you're taking baby steps with a flashlight in the dark uh, for a reason. So when you see a wall, you can stop and you can turn. Uh, that's what brownfield life is like. No, that was a great, great analogy. Baby steps in the dark with a flashlight. That, that's perfect. So with greenfield, it's a little bit easier because, you know, again, now you're outside and it's a sunny day and there's nothing there and you can build whatever you want. This is where, you know, again, it's going to be dependent on the business. If you have an immediate need to build your stuff right now, and immediately start bringing in business. Like for example, if your goal is uh, immediate growth and costs aren't that important, then you may do, um, you know, just deploy uh, the newest stuff right away, not worrying about cost. Hire the best people to do it great the first time, and that's that's a good way to go. Um, if you're looking at more of a conservative start, even for a greenfield, you may say, you know, we'll buy some new hardware and we'll set it up kind of the legacy way like let's say we're going to buy the brand new vendor x routers and we're going to use the cli and maybe we'll use ansible to configure them to start but within the with the end of the first year we want to migrate to all netconf 
API-based stuff and manage them over that and phase out the Ansible stuff. You know, maybe that's the less expensive approach over time. It really depends on what the organization is trying to achieve. But my experience deploying fancy APIs in a brownfield environment, especially a government brownfield environment, it's not happening. Not not at least for several years um, until you get all your hardware updated. People need to understand how to program. Uh, they need to be able to know how to code well enough to consume the libraries, like the, the client libraries for the APIs. There's a whole lot of concerns around that. And that's, again, part of the reason why SSH-based clientless tools like Ansible or even just straight pure Python scripts that do it. That's why I think those are so popular uh, in these kind of uh, enterprise type brownfield environments. I agree. And I, I will say like, um, I would say um, if we go back to the government kind of analogy there that um, you're just not going to be able to get it in there uh, day one. I mean, the processes, the, the purpose and processes that we talked about at the beginning um, are going to be the hindrance in my experience within the government field um, side of the house, because um, you're talking about legacy processes, like an, un uh, sorry, an unidentified purpose. Um, and then just a legacy process that hasn't changed over the last five, 10 years. So, you you know, we're going to be fighting that from the get-go to get something like this into a brownfield environment or even greenfield environment, in most cases in the government world, if there is a greenfield environment, uh, is going to be very hard to do, in my opinion. And I think the last thing that, it, you know, just to kind of wrap up that discussion is on scale. Um, one of the big advantages of automation, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to anyone that you really can't scale anything without automation. Um, you know, if you've got a couple couple individuals doing, uh, you know, let's say you're trying to migrate uh, a thousand sites from one WAN technology to another and you're doing it manually, you know, and you've got one guy or two guys doing the job and they, they do one site or two sites a day, they're going to be working on that migration for years. And that's probably not going to be appropriate to any business. So the automation type stuff, I think the scale is one of the biggest benefits of it. But if you're going to deploy automation in a scalable way, of course, the specific tool is going to need to be considered. You know, again, one one example is like for those who've worked with Ansible, you can statically define all the hosts that are in scope. The you know, it's a static inventory as it's called, or you can reach back into some dynamic inventory, tie it into a database or something like that. A single source of truth where all your all your host information already lives. Uh, for small environments, the former is probably fine. For large environments, it's probably not fine. Um, when it comes to you know, actually having that tool go out and program devices, typically just scaling up the automation control machine is a sufficient for really large deployments. You may need a more distributed design. Again, a lot of this is product specific. We won't get too much into it. But the, the real advantage is that I think if, you're, if your templates are correct and they're version controlled and they're automatically tested, again, quality at the source, if all that is in place, scaling up or scaling out the tool that actually does the controlling of the network, I think that's kind of trivial. If you've got the infrastructure in place, the tools, or I shouldn't say the tools, I should say the code, the testing, the quality, if all that's baked in and the tool just needs to consume it and configure devices, as you add the number of devices, just scale up or scale out the tool appropriately and you're generally going to be okay. So that's one of the big advantages of automation in general is that if you're in a business situation where you need to scale something or scale some step of a process or do something faster, maybe you migrate those thousand sites in three weeks instead of three years, then automation is going to be your friend. But again, it's focused on that business goal. We didn't just deploy automation because we thought it was cool and it would save us some time. No, we had a real business need to do that migration in three weeks. And that's why we deployed the tool, just as an example of, of how the tool has to support the purpose.
No, no, I, I think you're right on. Uh, I think the scalability is the biggest benefit you get with automation. I mean, there's other other aspects too um, that you do get, but I would say scale the scalability of the automation tool. Again, we're not being product specific here. Um, outweighs all the other benefits that you get with an automation tool. Um, I mean, you could take something that is a low-level task even, um, and when you have it in a subset of like five devices, one person doing it, it doesn't take long. Let's, I mean, something as simple as, I don't know, um, deploying OSPF on a router, let's say, something very basic, right? Um, theoretically. Um, and if you have to deploy OSPF on a thousand routers, now you, you have, that scale just got a lot bigger. And while one person ha- hammering at the keyboard for you know a week might be able to do it, you know, in a week, but if you have an automated, automatic type of system that can do it for you, um, that, that scale just got, uh, what is the word? Uh, the scale increased. Is that the right word, Nick? Right phrase? Yeah, I would, I would say that. I mean, it's, it's really just a matter of identifying that when you have a, uh, when you want to do automation at scale, you know, there are going to be product specific considerations around it. And there's, you know, again, all kinds of technology shows and, people who work at web scalers and are way smarter than I am on this stuff that would be able to tell you about the specific technical challenges of making it work. Really where I'm going with it is if you have a business problem that that is a high scale problem, most people will consider automation to solve it, but it's only useful if you build it correctly. So again, don't, um, you know, here's, here's a good example. I need to migrate a thousand sites. What you might do is you might say, well, that means I need to make a thousand configs and I'm just going to make those thousand configs by hand. And then the automation tool is going to copy them over. I was like, that's, that's dumb. All you did was save an SSH login. What you really want to do is make the template once, test it, put it in version control, make sure it's correct. And then just specify the structured data inputs that need to be populated in that template and then run the tool and generate your thousand files the or push out your right? thousand it's configs. You know, that's just, that's just the, me- yeah, I mean, it seems like common sense, but uh, I guess I'll, I'll just I guess I'll just leave it at that and say that common sense is not a common virtue. When it comes it's to not. Automation. It really isn't. But no, you're just you're just templating it out, putting in the variables re- as required, and and then the automation tool can go forth and SSH into those devices and apply those variables. Um, right. Right. It, it, I mean, the first the first example you gave, yeah, there's no sense in doing that. You save the SSH session, um, but again, how much time are you really saving by doing that? You're manually configuring all those configure all those. You're manually creating all those configurations in like Notepad or something. Sure, sure, and even even some of the static details, you know, I've seen where you know we might have a, a thousand line configuration, like a fire, you know, a good examples like firewall stuff where. You know, if we have a hundred object groups, yeah, we could just statically put all the object groups in and just do substitution, or we could just get, you know, take it up to the just a little bit more advanced level and do like a for loop and say, hey, here are all the ports and protocols I need. And even though that information is static, if we abstract that into some kind of structured data file like YAML or JSON to mm-hmm. use te- some technical examples, now if I ever need to add a new service group, I don't actually have to change the template. All I have to do is change the inputs. My opinion is you always want to change the inputs before you change the template. And if the template is more generic, then it is defined by what the inputs look like and you have a much more robust system. Um, so there are a lot of ways to kind of go about that. But the more the more scale you need, the more flexible you want the solution to be, in my opinion. So I have, I have a term that I was going to try to to use here, and I don't know if it's accurate. So I'm going to ask you if it is, and maybe we can discuss it real quick. Um, and then we can move on to the next kind of topic discussion we have here. Um, so for scale, like I was kind of terming or thinking like the specific use cases there and maybe that's corner cases use cases i don't know what the right term is so that's why i was kind of bringing something out to the to the fold here um you know you're going to have specific situations that you're trying to automate whatever that might be and so as long as you know those use cases that you have and again maybe that's not the right term um 
you test them in a smaller subset environment, if that's, you know, one or five devices or whatever, you get those all honed, ready to go, templates, et cetera. And then once you have all your use cases defined, then you can expand that to everything. And those are your use cases. And then, of course, it's easier still to create new use cases as things come up. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you have a if you have an extensible system where use uh, the 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 use case as an object itself has been abstracted, and you can just kind of modularly define use cases that can be consumed by an existing system. And I realize this is an extremely abstract conversation right now. Yeah, but, no. You know, we've done something like this in our environment. We'll talk about that next. Is we can define specific use cases that we want to consume by our generic system, and so provided that we supply the templates and all the other stuff like that, we can feed it into a generic tool. And outcomes the outputs that we expect based on those specific use cases. So that would I would consider that to be an element of scale. So initially, I was kind of thinking of scale of lots of devices, but you're looking at it from the perspective of lots of different use cases, and I think that's equally valid. When we look at scale as kind of a product or a combination of the number of different services or use cases I have, maybe multiplied by the number of devices, that might give us a better understanding of scale so that we're not just looking at it from one dimension of just counting the number of devices and saying, oh, I'm running at scale because I have N devices. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, we talked about two years ago now about some MPLS type uh, option A versus uh, option B versus C. And, you know, one of the big differences, though, is when you start to talk about the more complex ones is you have better scalable designs, not just for running one service, but for multiple services. And it's not just the number of customers you have or the number of VPN routes you have, but it's also the number of different MPLS services you offer. And as that number scales up, option B starts to look less attractive over time, the more services you offer. So you really can't discount the number of services you have when you're discussing scale. They really need to be connected, both the number of devices and the We'll call it the mix of different services offered. Yeah, services is probably a better terminology than than use cases. I was just trying to correlate some sort of terminology towards it because I think it's important to identify that it's not just um, you know scaling something to a thousand routers for like an, uh, an SD WAN migration or something like that. Again, trying to keep this vendor agnostic. Um, but it's also like identifying those services or again, I was using use cases a minute ago that you're going to you're going to have to account for in an automation system. Um, and you're going to have to write that up and, and template it out. And then from that point forward, you have that that documented and you shouldn't have to tweak that again, really. I mean, it's a template and you can just put it in the variables. Um, and depending on the OS and everything like that, you might have to have OS-specific templates. But I think that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's, again, the, the, the real summary there for, for all our listeners is when you consider scale, you have to consider the number of use cases and services and the number of nodes, not just the number of nodes. Perfect. Otherwise, you'll end up in a situation where you have a system that's really good at doing one thing and nothing else. And then you'll probably have to refactor your solution to make it fit other use cases that you didn't see that did become relevant later on in your business. Does that become like that race car scenario all over again? It could. It could very well. Um, but then it's a matter of you have to identify first. You have to identify what the problem is. Is it is it the tool that's broken more than like in this case, it might be. But you also have to consider it, given this new use case, do we have a process problem? Do we have a people problem? Exactly. It could actually technically be any of those problems. More than likely, it'll it. be the tool. Yeah, more than likely, it'll be the tool. But you definitely want to take that step back and reevaluate your purpose. And then down the line, your purpose, your process, your people, and then your tools last. Well, we're talking about a workflow here. So I, I guess at this point, I think we should kind of move into our story, right? Yeah, so this story here, this is uh, hopefully interesting for a lot of our viewers. Is I want to tell a specific story about what we did and there's some automation in there, but it's really, I want you to think of a process and a, a process is a bunch of people 
uh, along a line, almost like assembly line type work uh, within IT that we were trying to do to solve specific customer needs. And just a little bit of background. So this is federal government stuff. So I'm a little bit tight-lipped on the specifics here, but I think I can still tell the story. Yeah, we're just going to hide all the vendor, all the customer names and protect the innocent, right? So. Yeah, yeah, right. The customer names and some of the operational details. But, you know, just the, the first thing I want to start with is the government is extremely bureaucratic. Uh, the processes are are gripping, constrained. Um, the, the government has huge capital budgets, lots of money and smart people. So we're in that situation where we've got the race car, but the pro driver and a whole pot of gold behind us. But we're constrained to drive in second gear because there's a policy that says we have to drive in second gear. Uh, broken processes really drive the craze over these panacea tools, these silver bullets that people promise will solve all our problems. Oh, if we rearrange the laptops like this, or if we reseat these people here, or if we deploy this new technology, or we get this new dashboard, all of our problems are going to go away. And that almost never happens. And I've been around now for at least three different tech insertions, and it's never held up. Um, there's been improvements, but they've never been the breakthroughs that were promised. And the reason is because we haven't really identified the, the root cause of our problems. So our purpose really here, the specific problem that we're trying to solve was a quality issue. So what we were really trying to do is we were developing basically documentation packets for our customers. So we're in a service provider environment. We have customers that are connecting to us over some last mile connectivity. I'll keep it real generic. And we need to provide them with configurations and documentation on how to make that connectivity. So suppose you're an SP and you're basically giving your customer, hey, here is a file with the BGP configurations you need to do. And here's a document, a PDF that walks you through all the steps to apply it. So imagine it's a classic service provider enterprise type agreement there and more from the SP's perspective. Our main purpose was to improve product quality without increasing cost or lead time. So we need to deliver, we, we don't necessarily need to be faster, although of course faster is better, and we don't need to be cheaper, of course cheaper is better. Our number one focus is we need to improve quality because when we send customer configurations or documentation that is wrong, not only is it embarrassing and is it bad for us as an organization, but it also wastes time and money and it makes the lead time even longer because I, I don't know how other people measure it, but I measure lead time is when we fulfill the order and the customer accepts it because it has an acceptable level of quality and then we get paid. So we are really doing it. We were doing a poor job of this. There were other, there were some other challenges that further complicated this. Number one was customers regularly change their orders just hours before they were due to be shipped. So we, a customer would say, hey, 30 days from now, I, I want to be connected over here to do something. And we would say, all right, cool. We'll start working on your, on your uh, package and we'll, uh, we'll push that out to you, you know, no problem. Uh, the problem, though, is that if they tell us on, you know, 30 days prior and then we work on it, let's say 25 days prior, so we don't let it sit in the queue, you know, we work on it right away because we want, we want to be hardworking, we don't want to procrastinate, and we give it to them three weeks early, well, what happens when it changes, you know, a couple days or a week before the event? We just wasted all that effort. Now we need to build a build the product over again for them. The second challenge is when the product is delivered, the customer may uh, procrastinate performing that quality check. So if we give them the packet uh, three days or the, the, the product, I should call it, we give that to them three weeks in advance. They may not even look at it until the day before they need connectivity which is difficult because if there's a problem, we don't know about it right away. So we don't have any way to do integrated quality checking. We have huge variation in the quality of our products that we're shipping. Uh, and even worse is kind of beyond our control is that customers change their orders right before they're due. 
So for those who actually want to think about how they would solve this problem from a process perspective, you know, maybe you can pause it right now and just think about it. But I'm going to tell you what we did. And we took kind of four steps to address this problem. Uh, so let me, uh, let, let me just kind of go through this. And again, it's not like super technical, but I want you to kind of think of an assembly line process making physical goods. So the first thing that we try to do, and again, we haven't perfected it yet. But what we're trying to do is the first step and the most important is we want to time the release of materials to some fixed time before they're due for shipment. So for example, that customer places their order 30 days in advance, but to actually produce the product, thanks to automation, it only takes about 30 to 60 minutes of touch time. So it might say, well, if I just do it now, I can just leave it in my quote unquote finished goods inventory and then just ship it out. But that kind of violates one of our challenges because we know it's going to change. So if someone submits an order 30, day, 30 days early, we should just let it sit there. And that sounds bad. It sounds procrastinate. It sounds lazy. It's like telling management that we're just going to ignore work for four weeks and we're, we're going to intentionally wait until the last minute to do it. That sounds like bad management. And it sounds lazy. But it actually makes sense here. If we release that workflow into our process, let's say two days prior to when it needs to be delivered, then we can deliver it, you know, within a few hours of that release, you know, within 30 to 60 minutes. And we deliver it to the customer a day and a half early. Um, this has happened to me in, in real life, just so um, everyone that's listening, like this has actually happened to me uh, multiple times in real life. I like to get things done early. I like I get something comes in. I'm like, OK, let's knock it out. You know, it's not due for for a week or a month or whatever, how long it is. And then there's iterations of, oh, we need to change this. Oh, we need to change that. And now I just wasted time. I wasted my energy. I wasted my efficiency, uh, effort, whatever you want to call it. I just wasted that that time that I can never get back. And I mean, the optimal time, and again, this is you know kind of the theoretical maximum, is in a perfect world, we would release that work into our process 30 minutes before it was due. Yeah, yeah. Because if it takes us 30 minutes to do it, then we would, we would be just in time, G-I-T. Um, now, that's kind of a... That's kind of a pipe dream right now. You know, a couple days prior is still better than 30. But over time, we want to continuously release that. We want to keep putting tension on the system so we can keep improving. But typically right now, I think we're sitting at like four or five days prior. But way better, you know, even for those long-term orders, we wait. And by waiting, because we're able to turn it around so quickly, thanks to our automation solution, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, um, we're able to shorten that gap. And for those who, you know, maybe have worked in physical production, so for example, 12 years ago, I worked in a factory, so I, I do have a little bit of knowledge on this stuff, is that time gap, if we measure that time gap between the release of material and shipment, you can think about that as like work and process inventory. And the longer that is, means the longer the, the, the work is in the system, if it takes more time to process. And if we just let it sit on the shelf at the end of the process, it's finished goods inventory, which is likely to be obsolete because, again, the customers constantly change their orders and we waste time and money building the product. This is great. Yeah, that was the first, that's kind of the first thing we changed. The second thing we changed is before those fabrication activities, for example, generate the configs, generate the documentation, um, those kinds of things. Before we do that, we want to have some kind of integrated testing or checks on the operator input. This is basic, you know, programming 101 is that 
when you're running a program and it says enter a number and you type in the word dog, the program should either crash or tell you that something's wrong. It shouldn't try to actually, you know, store the word dog as a number and try to add it to something. So what we've done is over time, we've added more and more checks on the operator input. So when our our knock operators are typing input into this into the tool to say, okay, I need a customer needs this IP range and this is his site ID and here's his VPN ID and here's his tunnels or whatever he's doing. If something is wrong at that point of input, then the machine will fail right away because by failing fast, we minimize the downtime and provide a clear error message so the operator can correct it. Again, this is just basic stuff. We make changes to this probably every two weeks. So it's like a, a, a operator might say, hey, you asked me for IP subnet, but I put in an IP address, but I forgot to put the slash 30, uh, but the script still worked. Like the script still uh, passed. It went and turned green and gave me a config, but obviously the config had errors in it. That's an example of where we go back and we add more checks to say, hey, you better make sure you specify subnet mask and it has to be within this range to be valid. That's how we ensure. So this is just, again, we want to fail fast. We want to minimize that non-value added time of having the script fail. So this is just, again, basic, uh, you know, basic programming stuff. And that was the second thing we did after timing the release of materials. The third thing we did is that we want to track that product as work in process. So there's a really great book I read. I read it twice now. It's called Making Work Visible. I don't remember the, the author's name. It was a, a very smart woman who's worked in uh, programming for many years. We track the product as work in process. So when it goes into the system, nobody else, no other tasks can jump in front of it. We need to finish that system and get it all, or finish that uh, product and get it all the way through the system. And we use the Kanban for that. So just like in development, you may have a Kanban board with your to do, your doing, and your done columns. In the to do, or in the doing column, excuse me, you'll have some strict work in process limits, which effectively is how you. Uh, ensure the system doesn't take on more work than it can process. And that's how you maintain a consistent lead time. It's also how you maintain consistent quality. Um, it also has the kind of residual effect of helping us level by mix. And in our case, we've created, in some environments, we're still kind of uh, toying with this. We don't do it very well today, but different swim lanes. So for example, if we need a whole bunch of product A and none of product B, uh, I might be able to work on all the product A's at once and put them all into work in process. Now that's okay, but the people upstream from us who have to give us the inputs for product A, the bullwhip effect is going to have a big impact on those upstream processes if we take on too much work in process for one product set. So leveling by mix, effectively horizontal swim lanes across the Kanban is something we're looking at doing so that we can minimize those disruptions to flow for those who have to provide us upstream inputs. Now because our production process is relatively short, it's not that big of a deal right now you know we're talking relatively small quantities but i think these are important things to consider because you might have seven people working around and your whip limit might be seven and then you get six kanban cards to work on product a um, if you have a sub whip limit to maybe only work on two or three a's at once that's all you should do and people should sit idle i know it sounds ridiculous but again you don't want that bullwhip effect to affect all those upstream suppliers that are providing you with the quote unquote raw materials that you're using to do your production the fourth thing we did was all the different fabrication activities like the configuration generation, the documents, doing the SHA-256 checksums on this, you know, all those kind of things that generate files and generate outputs. Assembling all those files should be automated too. 
So again, for those who have worked in production environments like physical production, like factories maybe, you might have a number of different fabrication activities that feed either sub-assembly or final assembly lines where all these different parts end up at assembly and then you have people put things together. But if you're waiting on specific parts at assembly, nothing can continue. So it would be better rather than say, okay, John, you're going to do all the configs and Joe, you're going to do all the documents and Mike, you're going to do all the checksums and you're going to do them all individually. And then me, Nick, I'm going to be at assembly putting all these packages together. Well, if one of those three is moving slower than the rest, the entire flow line is slower or the entire flow of the line is slower. So it would make more sense to do the individual steps in sequence. So I generate a config, then a document, then a checksum, then assemble it, it's done. And we get that kind of single piece flow, which is another kind of lean concept that DevOps has taken into account. The single piece flow through the whole system, automate the assembly piece of it, and to technically all we end up with is a WinZip file. So it's the zip file and we can distribute that directly to customers and that is the product we deliver. So that is kind of the four steps we took that took our lead times down from several hours or days down to basically what's less than an hour today. And we're slowly trying to increase the time that we release materials so that it's as close as possible to when the customer actually needs to consume it. That reduces our cost substantially and the amount of rework we have to do when customer demand or customers change the services they ask for at the last minute. So I know that was like a lot of information. Mike, what, does that make sense to you? Hopefully, hopefully that was... Uh, there was some logic there, not just a guy talking about good ideas. No, so there, there's a lot of things in there that, that uh, to me, made a lot of sense, right? And uh, so there's some concepts I'm very familiar with, like fail fast. Um, very familiar with fail fast. Um, now, the book that you mentioned, I would definitely like to get that information. We'll put it in the show notes for everyone to to, to find the book, read it if you want to read it. Um, I have not read it yet, so it's definitely something I'm going to have to read. Um, and I'll take your your recommendation on that definitely. Um, I've never seen the Kanban Kanban before. Never heard of that, so that's something that's interesting to me. Would love to hear more about that. I'm not sure this is the form for that um, personally, but um, definitely something I want to hear more about and how you do the level mixing level by mix um within that that system um and then obviously the last fabrication activities um that all makes sense you take everything um there's a certain time um so so off topic a little bit fabrication activities reminds me of um a, a game called factorio and i don't know if anyone's ever heard of it um it's a game where you build a factory and in that factory you have things that take a certain amount of time to to build and then those 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 things that you build are ingredients for other things that you build that take a certain amount of time so in that game you actually have to do math to determine maybe my end product takes 10 seconds to make and the different ingredients take different, maybe five seconds and seven seconds and two seconds. And so you have to identify what the right um, mathematical kind of equation is so that you can uh, build all your required materials to build that end end item um, at the appropriate rate. And that's a long example, but that's really what I see with the, the step four fabrication activities. And I know I went to a video game on that, but that, that's kind of where I see with that. Um, but yeah, so back to what you were saying about, um, I think the Kanban and the level by mix. Yeah, so what you said about that video game is exactly right. That's exactly what we're talking about, these different fabrication activities. So again, rather than have different dedicated lines to do these different jobs, they're wrapped into, again, the single piece flow is that I do the configs, then the checksums, then this, then this, then that, then the document, and then I wrap it up and it's done. And it comes off as a single package. Rather than have multiple different dedicated fabrication activity lines feeding assembly, we want to automate that whole process, including assembly. That was really the takeaway from that. Perfect. Yep, and then the... Yeah, I can talk about the Kanban briefly. So Japanese word, it means card. 
um, like a like a like a production card. And what you would do with the Kanban is it's it, it's meant to develop like a pull system. So what you you know in IT doing a push system is almost impossible. And let me just describe what that means. So suppose we work in this factory again, and we are we want to keep everyone busy. We want to keep everyone working at max capacity to you know to get ROI or whatever. And we have people just building products and we're building to stock. We're building products and we're putting them in finished goods inventory and they're just going to sit there. So we're pushing products into a warehouse, even though there are no customer orders for any of it. So we're basically wasting money. The Kanban system is a pull system where you only produce what the downstream workstation tells you to produce. So let's say I have a small finished goods inventory and a customer buys, I don't know, a laptop. And then a Kanban gets issued from the French goods warehouse to final assembly and says, I need one laptop. If assembly doesn't have the parts, they send Kanbans upstream to the workstations upstream from them to the fabrication and says, I need one of this part or two of this part. So the card is permission to produce. So think about like a policer or a shaper in QoS. A token is permission to send one bit. It's kind of the same logic. Um, except the Kanban card gives you permission to produce. So with the Kanban system, because we're not dealing with physical goods and we don't pass cards around, we just have a, a electronic display and each work ticket moves from left to right. So from the time of release material from our quote unquote raw materials inventory through the system until it's done, that is kind of how we use Kanban. So we basically use it as a way to say, we can see where the work in process piles up along the way. When a customer order comes in, uh, you know, at the appropriate time, we release that into the system and the Kanban card basically tracks the work through the system. And if you don't have a Kanban card, you do not produce. Okay. That's basically what we do. That, that, that's great. And that was a great uh, um, quick five second, 30 second understanding of what a Kanban is. I have a question on that before we move on. Um, is there any way to do like a, a, a stock? I mean, I mean, like, let's say, let's say there's a product that is highly um utilized or demand there's a high demand for that product is a better word and let's say you know there's a high demand so maybe you keep five of that that product or a number of that product on on stock is that something within that system or is that something totally not within that system oh absolutely i mean the the, the people who came up with this system kanban and all these stuff it's toyota and i mean if you go to a toyota dealership right now there's going to be cars on the lot even though there's no, even though there's no one buying, like they'll produce cars even without the order because they're assuming that people are going to buy them. The difference though is that Toyota doesn't maintain enormous inventories. They're going to have just enough because they know they can produce because their lead time is so short that if I were to go buy a Toyota right now, they'd be able to produce a new one in X number of days or hours. They can the production itself, the production cycle is so fast that they can meet the demand very uh, a lot quicker than they used to be able to years and years ago. Right. I gotcha. With a small inventory, so you definitely need to have products on the shelf. You definitely need to build the stock a little bit. But what you don't want to do is just build the stock just to keep your people busy. That's one advantage of DevOps is that in physical production, it's easy to see how that's possible. Just keep taking parts out of raw materials and run them through the factory, even though there's no customer demand. You can do that technically. With IT, you can't because all, everything we do in this environment, it's all built to order. Like if there's no work, there's, if a customer doesn't call us and tell us they need a package, what do we do? Well, it's situational, situational perspe- uh, specific, right? It's situational specific. I'm stepping on my word. Definitely is. You know, so yeah. you need that information at that time right now. And that information is going to be different five seconds from now, 30 seconds from now. So you need that information now or maybe five minutes from now, not, you know, two hours ago or a week ago. 
Right, exactly. So we can't, you know, it's just like imagine a service provider that's just like, well, no one's buying our services, so let's just go and configure VPNs on our PEs. Like that just sounds stupid. Exactly. <laughs> or MPLS traffic engineering tunnels. The push systems make basically no sense. They make make no sense whatsoever in IT. So fortunately, we don't have that problem. But the thing that's worse for IT is that work is invisible. And that's, again, why I recommended that book is because in physical production, you can see piles of inventory. You can see scrap. You know what's good quality and what's not by doing an inspection. But in IT, it's different because I can walk up to five people sitting at their desks. And just by looking at them, I probably can't tell how busy they are. Like, who's the guy with 100 tasks in his inbox and who's the guy with two? I can't tell unless that's made visible. And that's what the Kanban board helps us do. So the Kanban really, not only is it a pull system to get work through, but it's also a way of determining where is work stuck and wh- where, do, where do we need to apply? You know, where are our constraints in the system? Where do we either need to remove, you know, either add capacity to that constraint or move tasks away from it, et cetera, so that we can improve the throughput of the whole organization? Wow. Well, um, for everyone listening, you know, I just learned something new. I mean, Nick is great. If you can't see it and don't know that already, I mean, look at that. I just learned something new on this, this, uh, podcast. And, and that's, that's amazing. Um, not that I know everything because I don't, I'm not naive in thinking that I know everything, but there's so much out there to learn, obviously is what I'm trying to get at. So. Yeah. And I think, I think it's probably worth now, you know, for the, for the techies on the uh, podcast, they may want to talk just a little bit about the tool and I'm happy to do that. And before I get started, I just want everyone to know this tool is, Open source, it's on my GitHub, uh, you know, and at the end of the show, I can tell you where to find it, but it's a tool that's out there and it's something you can look at, and I've got some samples. The purpose of this tool, and again, just if, if you're like a super tech guy, you're not gonna be impressed by this. So just kind of take, you know, take a step back and just look at it from the perspective of what we've been talking about. The purpose of this tool is to take inputs and just create output files. Okay, we're just taking uh, YAML data, basically, it's an Ansible playbook. I'm taking variables from YAML, and I'm going to take that information and create text files that users can apply to their equipment to uh, consume our services. So we're going to use a simple kind of enterprise example because I think it makes sense. So suppose I have a branch site and I'm a, I'm a company and I have eight branch sites. Every branch site has a router, a switch, and a firewall. That means that at the end of running this tool, you're going to end up with eight folders inside that zip file. So you have a zip with eight folders and inside each folder, three configs each. Now the name of the folder is going to be the name of the site, so branch one, branch two, etc. And then inside each folder, it's going to say, you know, branch one router, branch two switch, or branch, you know, branch one router, branch one switch, branch one firewall, and then in branch two, etc. So it's going to kind of repeat like that. You'll end up with 24 total files. Each one of those files is going to have the specific site information for each branch. So maybe branch one has this IP range, it has this BGPAS, it has these other parameters. All that stuff is going to be specified in the variables file. And then we're just going to basically, it's a nested loop inside Ansible that says, you know, for every site and for every template, generate files inside of a folder. It's not, it's not hard at all. Uh, I'm pretty confident that most people would be able to replicate this within 20 minutes. There's some extra features that it does too, that I just talked about briefly is when you add new branch sites, there might be internal infrastructure things that need to be supported. So for example, we use an SNMP monitoring tool that accepts a comma separated values file, a CSV file of new sites that are added. Wouldn't it be great if we could automatically update our SNMP map with these new sites without having to hand type or copy paste icons or make changes? So what we can do is at the end of our process, we can have these infrastructure files has nothing to do with the branch site itself 
but we can apply it at our existing infrastructure to support those branch sites. So we can update our SNMP map. We can, uh, for those who use Cisco ISE for maybe TACAX or RADIUS, we can have a CSV file that we can import that adds that router switch and firewall for RADIUS and TACAX services within ICE. So we don't have to add all those things manually. And that can be another output from our program. We could do snippets for our BGP route reflectors. Maybe those nodes are remote pops in a service provider environment and we wanna connect them back to route reflectors um, but again, we're not generating configs, full configs for the route reflectors because they're already in place. We only need a delta, and those are part of our internal infrastructure, not related to the branch. Another feature is the checksum. So automatically, we generate the SHA-256 for each file. We write that to a CSV file, so that way when we deliver the files, people can see that they can run uh, SHA-256 on the files, make sure there was uh, no integrity issues. So that's just kind of baked in. It's just a minor security enhancement that's part of the process. Yeah, just maintaining integrity of the files, right? That's, yep. that's that's the last step before assembly. So that's the last fabrication activity, just as an example. Real quick on step one. Um, so I had a question on those those kind of infrastructure-related uh, components like SNMP map, AAA server, BGP route reflectors, et cetera. Um, so you have the, this file, the files that are for the branch. And are these other files in the same zip, a WinZip file? Yep, they're in the same zip, but there's a in this case there'd be a fourth folder called infrastructure. Okay, perfect. So you you know so you'd have three three for each branch and then a folder called infrastructure. This is what your centralized knock might use to update the map for those new branches that came online. So those other three, you might say, hey, field engineer one, here's the configs for branch one. Field engineer two, here's the configs for branch two. And maybe those field guys go out and do the configs, but then back in the knock, you'll consume the infrastructure stuff to prepare the infrastructure to accept those new branch perfect. sites. Okay, I was thinking that, but I want to make sure. Yeah, something like DMVPN wouldn't need that. You know, the hub doesn't need to be changed, but you know, you may not always be lucky or you may not always have a technology like DMVPN. Like if you just have static GRE tunnels, for example, this feature might be useful because they can help automate that process at the head end. Yeah, full mesh static GRE tunnels. Yeah. 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 The last thing that it was actually the most technically challenging because it required me to learn a lot of new stuff is I've integrated Ansible with LaTeX, and that's L A T E X. It's the uh, very common in academia, it's a tool that you can use to uh, basically do, uh, I don't know what the right word is, maybe typesetting of data. So it's kind of like an alternative to Microsoft Word where you can program in a document, create nice PDFs, really, you know, there are some wizards out there who can make some really cool stuff. All I tried to do here is take a LaTeX file and kind of overlay Jinja 2 on top of it, which is the templating engine that's used with, with Ansible, and be able to say, I have this almost like a PDF template for documentation, and then be able to go in and substitute branch-specific information for each thing. So those field guys who go out to those branches to stand up those new sites so they can connect back to the enterprise, they'll have clear documentation that says, plug in port 00 here make sure that you get these specific VLANs and here are the exact routes. And it can kind of walk people through that process. And especially when you're working in the government uh, and you're dealing in the military specifically, a lot of the people running networks are either very young in years or uh, could be inexperienced in this stuff. And that's not good or bad. It's just a reality. So by providing these documentation, uh, you're basically giving people that extra knowledge about what's going on. Well, you're keeping it simple, right? Kiss? Yeah, KISS, yeah. And this is and this is all automatically generated. And that was a problem. That was one of our biggest uh, you know, quality issues is that when we used to create diagrams, we used to hand type all the IPs on the diagram. I'm sure all of us have seen diagrams that are just enormous IPs and interfaces and uh, IGP boundaries all over them. And those diagrams are outdated almost as soon as they're written because there's so many things change. So by maintaining the template here, that means it's in version control. That means it can be tested and maintained and reviewed and we get consistent quality every time we run it. So the, so again, our purpose was quality. This is how we deliver it.
So I have a question on the diet, the diagrams that you're mentioning, right? Because you're making a, a site diagram. Um, so you're adding a new branch or whatever. You're creating a site diagram for that branch. Are you also updating the old diagram for like the like the I guess the core, the uh, the knock area? Yeah, it doesn't happen automatically. So oh, it doesn't. these okay. are like those are some of the yeah, those are the the thing that's difficult is that not being an expert in the LaTeX language, the way I do this is I just have a static like a JPEG image that I write to the PDF and then over top of it I write text. Okay. So I'm not smart enough to actually draw diagrams dynamically. What I really do is I I create the PDF with static images and then write stuff over top. Now that's lame, no doubt. Uh, I just don't know this language very well and I'm still kind of new to it. But again, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and say I brought value to an organization with it. And I think that's the thing that matters most. You know, being able to dynamically draw the diagrams was actually less valuable to us in the short term rather than this, because this allowed us to improve our quality a little bit faster. Well, yeah, what's the purpose, right? We go back to the 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 original purpose that you stated for you know, your own situation and it was to provide value. Um and to not increase cost and to not what increase lead time. So Right. Yeah. Improve, increase, Im- improve quality without, Im- without increasing cost or lead time. So we were able to do that here. And then again, this is what our customers see. So creating a diagram for our own internal knock people is less important than creating a diagram of something that our customers can consume. No, that, that's outstanding in my opinion. I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone else that's done this personally. I'm sure there's people out there that have, but I mean, this is, this is a good use case. It's not, again, like you said, it's not going to be technically crazy out there, technical nerd knobs and whatnot, but it, it's a real live um, deployed uh, a solution with automation working and providing value to, I guess, what I would call a business, even though it's not a business. Right. That's, that's, that's really what it is, you know? And again, it's, we're not logging, there's no device logins. We're just running this on the local control machine. We're not logging in devices. We're not pushing configs. We're not, you know, there's no infrastructure as code. So all those kind of things that you learn early on are the kind of holy grails of automation. We don't even attempt to do that because it's not our purpose, not yet at least. Um, And I think that a lot of, a lot of engineers tend to get caught up in that. And I think that kind of goes into our next topic here about, you know, tips for starting, and this is kind of a, a conversation for those who might want to start to get into automation, not really sure where to start. Uh, again, uh, what is your purpose? You need to ask that question first. You know, your purpose can't, you, you can't just say the, uh, your purpose is the end goal, which is, oh, we, our purpose is to have infrastructure as code and do all this. It's like, no, 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 no. Try to put it in business speak or try to put it in terms of uh, customer value. Your customer does not care if you're doing infrastructure as code. They don't care if you have version control. Those are just means to achieve an end. Your purpose needs to be grow the company, improve profitability, uh, improve customer satisfaction, reduce lead time. Those are the kinds of goals we're looking to achieve. And that is going to determine the appropriate means to achieve that end. So you just want to be careful and not dive right into a lot of the stuff that's out there. And don't get me wrong. uh, There are people who know this stuff on a technical level, orders of magnitude better than I do. But it's very important to start with the business problems you're trying to solve and addressing those immediately uh, rather than the super complicated kind of infrastructure as code. Nobody logs into devices anymore. Everything is centrally managed. Everything is centrally deployed. Uh, Click a button and everything works. You know, that's that's cool. Don't expect to get there, uh, especially if you're in a a large enterprise or government, you're not going to get there anytime soon. So I just want to kind of warn everyone that, you know, if you go into your job and and your boss kind of shoots you down for this, there might be a good reason for it. And you may want to just go back to what is your purpose? 
Well, I mean, you could talk to them too about it. You could discuss it, have that conversation, be open about it. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. It, you just need to make sure you, as, a, as an engineer, understand the, the real business goals and what the problems are you're trying to solve. And then I would have some sort of... I would have some sort of feedback loop too. And I don't know if that's the right terminology. So correct me, Nick, if that, that's not right. But I would call it kind of like a feedback loop where, you know, you might know the purpose today. What's the purpose three months, six months, 12 months, a year, sorry, two years, three years, whatever time period down the road, what is the purpose? Is it still the same purpose? Right. And your, and your automation needs to move with the business. Uh, you know, in, in our organization, there's been, you know, what we initially developed in the winter is different than what we had in the spring. And it's different than what we just worked on six weeks ago because the customer demand changed. We had a hour long call with the customer about some of our products and it turned into here are the changes we'd like to see with the product you're delivering to us. And that changed the way we did our automation and it changed our delivery process a little bit. Um, that's important. And you have to take that into mind and into what the concern is and who your customer is determines on where you are. So if you're Ben, I get back to the thing we talked about earlier, if you're enterprise IT and you're in that kind of bimodal organization and you're doing internal service stuff, your customers are your fellow employees that are supporting the business. And what is valuable to them? Now, they don't really care if you're doing infrastructure as code or not. If you determine that that's valuable and those more advanced techniques are valuable for your specific environment, by all means, deploy it if you have the know-how and the buy-in. Um, but if all your customers want is hey, we need a faster way to get a laptop's image or we need a faster way to get these tickets resolved or we need a faster way. Uh, when I plug in, if I accidentally, uh, here's a, here's an example I saw, um, something like a BPDU guard or something like that. Somebody plugs in a switch to a wall jack and it gets their port shut down and maybe it's corporate policy that you can't have that auto recover. Um, maybe they say, hey, instead of a four hour lead time for to get, to get my port bounced, I want it to be within a couple seconds. And then maybe you can use some kind of automated tool that, logs it and you know automatically meeting schedules with that person to ask them what they were doing and why but in the short term you bounce their ports so they can get back on the network you know that's a bad example i just made it up no no no. i think that's a good example i mean did you just you just made that up on the fly i think that's a good example of automation it, it's a little bit unrealistic but i think it gets to the point of you know your what your customer cares about is what you need to work on assuming that what they're asking for is something you know how to do and if it's not something you know how to do you need to really consider if that's something that you can either investigate um, if it's something that's going to help your overall organization um, and whether it's something that you can do in the future with some more knowledge or some more money. Um, so again, I always recommend starting small and here's just, you know, kind of how I view our potential process over the next several years. So you may start with something and say, you know, instead of doing configurations manually and just typing in a notepad and copy paste, maybe use the tool that I developed, use that to generate files and documents, and just use that to start. You're not, you don't have automation logging into network devices. You don't have automation doing any kind of uh, hard stuff. There's no risk. You're just generating files. And that's where we are today. Pretty low risk. So step one. Yeah. And then step two might be, okay, now that we're past that, maybe we configure our automation to take that information that's in memory. And instead of writing it locally to disk on a file, write it out over the network over like SSH. Again, Ansible is a good tool for that. Just write this template out to all the devices so that way I don't have to do all those logins and I don't have to ship files around. And maybe I can, again, that SHA-256 thing out the window because that it, I didn't have to transport any files. So maybe I can cut some of those steps out of the process. 
Maybe after that, you say, I'm going to make it item potent. So I only want to make changes to the devices that need to be changed rather than just the equivalent of a copy paste of a config. Again, most people try to do that in the beginning. Uh, I found it can be very time consuming and sometimes stressful to try to do that from the beginning. Uh, I'm not recommending that you completely ignore trying to make your stuff item potent. But again, focus on business value. If you know for 100% that just copy pasting a loopback config over an existing loopback config isn't going to cause a problem and you've tested it extensively, then maybe you don't really care about the complexity of making something item potent. Um, I know that's kind of a hearsay for many in the automation community, but again, the whole purpose of the show was about business value and purpose, not around technical optimizations. So I just want people to kind of keep that in mind. And then maybe the final step is when you start to talk about, okay, no one's using the CLI anymore. We're going to migrate to some kind of more advanced API like NetConf or RESTConf or gRPC. It doesn't really matter. We're going to serialize data through this API and we're going to have the code that does those API calls and version control. It's going to be uh, tested and all that other kind of fun stuff. Um, doesn't have to be too, um, doesn't have to be too involved, but you know, and then after that, again, I'm just, I, I kind of stop there and say, after that, you can go as far as your business requires you to go. But I found that, you know, my personal thing is about a year ago when we started to do this, I came out like somewhere in the middle of this chart and I was telling my coworkers, oh, we got to do it this way and here's how we can do it. And we can, we don't need people logging in devices anymore. And I basically got told like, that's not going to happen. And it was, you know, and the reason it wasn't going to happen, a lot of it, I think was just people didn't really quite understand it and they weren't bought into it yet. And that's fine and totally understandable. So it's a kind of a big step back and did some uh, introspection and said, how can I bring value to this organization in a way that they'll understand and in a way that will actually improve our operations? So that's why I figured if we start small and we make continuous incremental progress, we can bring value sooner because I could spend the next year arguing with people about infrastructure as code and all this other fun stuff. But if I don't deploy it for a year, that's a whole year of value adding activity that we didn't gain because we didn't take action now. You missed the opportunity. I mean, honestly. Yeah, we missed the opportunity. And even if the opportunity comes back later, we still lost a year of potential improvement. We missed the time, yeah. Yeah, we, lo we lost the time. You either lost the opportunity or the time, or, and that generally translates into money, which is bad. No one wants to lose money. So what I like what you did here, and I'm not trying to cut you off, hopefully I didn't, um, what, I, what I like you did here is you really broke it down to baby steps, really simple baby steps, um, and I've been terminizing baby steps lately a lot, uh, to an ultimate goal. Now, each baby step does provide value to that organization. I'm trying to be, uh, maybe not agnostic is the right word, but I'm trying to say uh, your use case agnostic. So, you know, baby steps and we're providing value to the ultimate goal of that organization, whatever that is and whatever that goal is. Um, and, and these baby steps for you are four baby steps, right? But there might be more for other people out there that are doing this. That might have 10, they might have five, they might have two. Um, it depends on their situation and their environments with their organization. Yep. And again, the way I look at it is I tend to, I tend to rank these things by you know, the lowest risk, lowest effort at the top, and then the highest risk, highest effort oh, that's kind perfect. of at the bottom. And when I say highest risk, it doesn't just need to mean technical risk, like uh, how much risk that the network blows up or how much risk that I get fired. You also have to consider the social engineering perspective. What's the risk of me not being able to sell this to management? You know, when you say, all, hey, all I'm doing is I'm taking away your little Visual Basic script from 10 years ago and replacing it with something that can generate the configs better, higher quality version control. And it's like, okay, that's fine. I can buy that. 
um, low risk to sell. It's easy to sell to your management team versus making the harder sell of, hey, we need to, we need to, I need ten million dollars in capital right now so we can replace everything in the network that runs NetConf, and obviously that's gonna not. Yeah, it's work. a lot harder of a sell. Yep. Yeah, it's a lot harder of a sell. Way higher risk. So start with the low risk, easy kind of low hanging fruit, show value, and then from there people will probably believe what you're doing, and you'll be able to make better improvements over time. But again. Better improvement has to change as the business goals change. So that's why you need to be tuned in. Maybe not you as an engineer directly, but through your management or through other people in your organization, tuned in to the drivers of your organization, or at least at a minimum, the drivers of your department. Well, I, I would I would actually state that you have, I mean, even as an engineer in this day and age, you really do need to understand the business drivers of the organization. Um to be able to be, in my opinion, successful, um, business drivers, outcomes, um, and from those come requirements, constraints, and drivers. And we've talked about that at length, Nick, you and I have. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't think you meet su- successful without that. I mean, you really need to tie to the business in some fashion. You need to partner up with the business. And obviously, in, in some of these uh, situations and examples that we've talked about today, they're not necessarily a business. It's, it's the government. But still, um, you can correlate that to the business concepts. So as long as you're tying yourself to the the underlying purpose, uh, the underlying value that you're trying to give to that purpose, I think you're going to be successful. But I think you have to. Yeah, I think so. So I think it's, I think this is a good time to kind of close out. And I just want to kind of briefly recap some of the things we talked about, you know, and even though we didn't talk about automation as a tool too much here, because we wanted to focus on the process of DevOps, process improvement, how things get made and how they can bring business value. I think that automation as a tool is still important. And the reason it takes off so much is because, you know, in our particular case, if we're looking at our specific purpose and our purpose again was to improve quality without increasing cost or lead time, Here's kind of just three quick facts about our organization and what we observed after deploying automation in our system. Number one, we were able to improve quality primarily by reducing variation. So if you think of it that way, if I'm able to produce the same product consistently over and over and over again, you're, as long as that template is good, all the things that derive that are derived from it will be good. So by reducing variation, you improve quality. And when you reduce variation, Subsequently, you're going to reduce rework, and we'll talk about how that affects cost in a minute. But in general, we were able to meet our primary goal of reducing variation, which improved quality. Next, we were also able to reduce lead time. Even though this wasn't our primary goal, we were able to reduce lead time by increasing throughput for the same amount of work in process. So what I'm saying is the thing that took us the longest, which was creating diagrams and checking configs and all that kind of stuff, we were able to shrink that down so much that we were able to reduce our lead time from hours or days to basically just minutes or hours now if we really wanted it to be, we still have the same work in process. Like customer demand, uh, it is improving, but let's just pretend it wasn't. If we had the same work in process, so the same customer demands being placed on the system, we're still putting the same amount of work into the system. You know, we haven't hired new people, so we haven't improved capacity. Uh, and we haven't outsourced any of our work. Our lead time still went down because we can push things through the system faster. We reduced costs because we decreased rework. So this is kind of a corollary of increased quality. We reduced costs because the amount of high quality products coming out has increased. So it means less direct labor has to be spent fixing stuff. So when I worked in a factory, I worked in a, uh, I was a QA technician right after final assembly. And there was a rework area kind of behind me. And when I found problems, you know, I would, I would annotate it on the tag I'd put it in the container. Uh, the defective products and I would move it over to the rework area. And then there were some more senior engine, you know, they were actually, you know, I, back then I was a kind of unskilled labor. 
um, working in a production plant, but there were more senior engineers who were highly skilled electrical engineers who could tear the thing apart and figure out what was going on. Uh, clearly, they were more expensive than I would. I was, rightfully so. And there were a lot of them working on defective products. Now, granted, the product overall was quite good. So they were bored most of the time, which is a good a good sign, to be honest. Um, but imagine the smaller the rework area, the less people have to staff it, which means you save money on that. Not to mention the impact on lead time and customer satisfaction, which we, we're not even measuring here, but we can all imagine that it, that it improved. Um, so we were really able to improve all three of these indicators, even though we were only focused on one. And I would encourage everyone else to experiment with automation and DevOps and the process of ongoing improvement and try to identify how you can also improve quality, reduce lead time and reduce cost in your organizations as well. Well, Nick, that that was once again amazing. Um, I, I sincerely appreciate everything that we talked about today. As always, I've learned a number of things. Hopefully all our listeners have learned a number of things as well. Um, Again, I appreciate it. Do you have any last minute co- uh, comments, questions, concerns to vocalize? No, I think I'm good, Mike. I mean, it was a great conversation. I think uh, you gave me a new video game to play, so I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, um, look it up. I've already blogged about it once. Um, yeah. I think automation versus manual, it's a blog post, but Factorio is nice. kind of an interesting game. If you like the math, you'll really get into it, I promise. Um, awesome. Just make sure you have a, a pretty beefy computer to play it on. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, just real quick, uh, where can uh, are, are the listeners, Ziglets and whatnot, find you on the interwebs? Yep. So, primarily hit me up on Twitter, Nick Russo42518. Uh, you can also go to my website, NGRUSMC. Basically, uh, just about everything on that website is free except for uh, a service provider book I wrote a few years back. Please help yourselves to uh, all the free resources there. Uh, I put it up there for you to try to help out the community. Yeah, and Nick's content is is uh, amazing. It really is. It's a uh, very professional at a higher standard than, than most content out there. So um, the fact that it's free, um, his service provider book isn't free, but it is one of the best books I've ever read. So definitely take a look at it. I'll have the links in the show notes as always. Uh, Nick, once again, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. I love talking with you. I can't wait to do it again. Thanks again, Mike. Take care. Hey friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, that's going to close out this episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast on designing for DevOps. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access today's show notes. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 30. If you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let us know. You can find us on all of the socials. That's Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, Just search for ZigBits and you'll find us. You can also send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with real-world context around technology. Bye for now.